Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. So before we get into today's conversation, I wanted to follow up on some things from our last episode on sex and sexuality. It seems like we might have been tapping into some collective desire no pun intended, <laughs> to to explore sexuality more. Because right after we recorded that episode, a couple of my favorite podcasts released episodes that had a lot of overlap with ours. And I think you listened to them too. Mm-hmm. I wanted to share those with our listeners for anyone who might be interested in hearing more and just expanding the conversation. So the first is the We Can Do Hard Things podcast with Glennon Doyle called How to Be Sexually Confident with Mae Martin. So good. And the other one is For the Love podcast with Jen Hatmaker, and that's the episode called Unraveling the Grip of Shame on Our Sex Lives with Matthias Roberts. And I think she also did a series in 2022 all about dating and sex as a newly divorced person. But you listen to those too, right? I did at your recommendation. I listened to the Mae Martin episode first, and that one was so funny. Yeah, they're really funny. really a great exploration also of gender identity in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really fascinating to me. And some great moments about how to talk with your kids about sexuality, or maybe not. But I just found that part really funny to listen to and interesting. I did too. And I loved that they mentioned, I felt very validated because they mentioned that one thing that their parents got right was not assuming they were straight growing up. Yeah, And I was like, oh, yay, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Very affirming in that way. Yeah. And then I listened to the podcast with Matthias Roberts also. And Mm -hmm. wow, what a tender soul. Yes. Yes. He was was so, so lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I subscribed because I wasn't listening to that um, Jen Hatmaker podcast. But the next episode is with one of the co-founders of Dipsy, which produces sexy audio stories. It's an app that I highly recommend if you haven't listened to it. (laughs) Big fans over here (laughs) at the Kindred's (laughs) podcast. So as soon as the Dipsy episode popped up in my feed, I listened to it that day. It was so good. You will love it. I didn't, there were, I learned a lot of things that I didn't realize about the app, but what's so cool about it is she is one of the founders of the app and she gives the whole like origin story of how they created it like in their kitchens and having to unplug the refrigerator because it was making too much humming noise in the background while they were recording oh. their first story and they mm-hmm. forgot to plug the fridge back in and spoiled oh, no. all their food. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But she was like, you know, there's all these stories of men in their garages creating uh apple or whatever and so ours is the story of women in their kit at their kitchen table and i just really loved that so i have been a dipsy user for about two years now after you gave me the first promo code for a free month Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. one of the only apps that i regularly pay for which is saying a lot yeah highly recommend this is not sponsored (laughs) we just love i I was just thinking we should have a promo code but it is really good we can link to it in the show notes yeah yeah all right, what what taboo are we going to take on today, Ashley? Okay, so today we are switching gears and talking about alcohol. Yay, or boo, I don't know. Or booze. <laughs> booze. <laughs> oh, the puns, so bad. The puns. So I'll give a content note here that we will be talking about 
the many facets of alcohol and drinking, including underage drinking, alcohol abuse, and our own experience with loved ones with alcoholism. And mainly, I want to emphasize that y'all know we are not professionals in this space. We may get some things wrong. We'll try to keep this conversation grounded in our own experiences, but those experiences are not universal. So, as they say in Al-Anon, which is the support group for people who love people with alcoholism, take what you like and leave the rest. If you know, you know. All right, Katie, to start off our conversation, how old were you when you had your first drink and what was it? Can you remember? Yeah, because I was a late bloomer, I think, oh. on this one. Yeah, I didn't have my first drink until my freshman year of college, second semester. Wow. Wow. The willpower. (laughs) The willpower. Well, we'll get into that too. It was on the night of what was called self-selection. And this is kind of the equivalent of like a rush week Mm, uh, for sororities. But my college didn't have sororities. They had something called eating houses, which are really similar. But you basically put your name into a lottery system based on which house you like the most. Kind of Mm. like a Harry. It's kind of like the Harry Potter sorting hat. thought of it that way and then like in the middle of the night they'd come and knock on your door to let you know which one you ended up in so it's like a big surprise and there's a big party in the morning but then that night there's like a huge party at all of the different houses and it's got like a little bit of mischief not hazing but Mm. like you know dumping everybody with water and glitter and that kind of silly college thing when it's freezing cold yeah outside and so, like I said, I'd resisted drinking all first semester, but I decided for some reason to have my first drink. And it was a glass of cheap Andre champagne. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, better, better than other things. Like, yeah. it's better than the nasty beer that they usually had yeah. at the house. So I only had one, but it was like very symbolic for me and also for my friends who were like, what? Katie's having a drink, you know? Cause it uh-huh. was like this big moment of me deciding to do that. And then honestly, like word got around Uh that I had my first drink. And (laughs) I guess maybe I got buzzed. I don't really remember. Or I at least convinced myself that I was, you know, because it was like, I had my first drink of alcohol. (laughs) So silly. (laughs) What about what about you? You know, there was something really seductive about being the good girl who subverted expectations. You know, I think I'm still living out that narrative. Oh my God, I know. I kind of loved that reaction from people, and that's probably something worth unpacking eventually. (laughs) But I definitely know what you're talking about. I was a little younger. I think I was around 14 or 15, and I don't remember exactly my first drink, but sophomore year of high school was when I remember drinking becoming more of a thing with my peers. And I'll just say I was not a drinker or a partier. I was not really one of the cool kids like that. But mm-hmm. I do remember this one school dance where afterward we went to a party at a motel room that some older kids had rented. And my boyfriend at the time offered me a wine cooler. And I think it was a Zima. Uh-huh. And what I remember is drinking half of it and then running across the street to throw up in the bushes of the Chinese restaurant next door. <laughs> oh, like the sugar. The it's sugar. So, gross, so sweet. Ew. Yeah, it was something about, like, I was nervous because I was around all these older mm. kids. And 
we had gone to Ruby Tuesday for our dinner before the dance. And so, you know, the heavy meal, the sugary drink, something about all that just did not mix well. And honestly, for Aww. most of high school, whenever I try to drink, I would end up feeling sick before I ever felt buzzed or drunk. Mm. I don't think I knew what drunk felt like until I was much older. And I think it's because mm-hmm. high school kids tend to drink really sugary or really gross stuff. And that just – to yeah. this day, I can't do a lot of sugary alcohol. Mm-mm. No, me neither. Yeah. So I did drink some senior year, but I didn't start drinking with any regularity until freshman year of college like you. Mm-hmm. What was the culture of drinking like when you were a teenager? Did your friends drink? Was there a lot of that around? Yeah, there was a ton of that around. My classmates did a lot of drinking. I'm going to say it started in high school, but it might have been middle school. I honestly don't know. And... They weren't very good at not getting caught. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like, there was a lot of parties that got busted Mm -hmm. all the time. And I can remember, I was in middle school, and I think that my older brother was still still in high school at the time. And the entire varsity cheerleading squad and the soccer team, because my school at the time didn't have a football team, so the Ah. cheerleaders did soccer anyway. (laughs) But they all got caught at this big house party. And... They all had to sit out. Anyone caught had to sit out for three varsity Whoa, games. That's a big deal. And that meant the varsity, junior varsity team played in Whoa. their place. It was not pretty. Nope. I think that was probably more painful for them than uh-huh. anything else was yeah. like the JV team playing. And then the JV cheerleading squad, of which I was a part, we got to perform at those games. Oh. That was fun for me. Oh, that's but, cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, but this kind of thing was so common. Yeah. And kids were always throwing raging parties at their houses I went to school with a lot of rich kids whose parents bought them alcohol yep. or had it in the house. So, like, lots of accessibility to alcohol. Plus, all mm-hmm. the bars in the area would serve underage people at the time. Yeah, same. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But then as I was thinking about this more, it wasn't only my peers who were abusing alcohol. It was absolutely the grownups, too, yeah. acting really irresponsibly. And I'd be curious if that's your experience, too, especially with drunk driving. Like, we would go yep. out to dinner after a game – Parents would knock back drink after drink after drink and put their kids in the car and drive them home Mm. regularly. Mm. So there was no good model Mm -hmm. for these kids from their parents either. And But because I was so immersed in evangelical church culture, as we've talked about, I was really expected to live by example. Mm. So Mm -hmm. if you were disciplined enough to do so, it was kind of seen as ministry to go show up at a party and not drink. I don't know if that was ever a thing. It probably was. For my Baptist friends, and I just didn't realize that they saw it that way. Uh, but yeah. now that you mention it, I'm absolutely, I imagine they were considering themselves like ministry when they were uh-huh, not drinking right. and being the designated driver and stuff. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Which honestly isn't totally terrible. No, I mean, but it's very safe. <laughs> it's very safe. It's very to safe do. to have a designated driver. Um, but it's not fun. So I did that yeah. sometimes, but not often. And I feel like my church friends were a little bit more all over the map. On this, like some of them were like me and didn't drink at all. Some did occasionally to impress someone, like a crush they had on, Mm -hmm. like someone they had a crush on, they would drink. And I can remember one of my best friends coming to me to confess at our graduation party that she was going to have a beer just so I wouldn't be shocked. Bless her. (laughs) Bless her heart. I know. And my experience, the Baptist kids were like the wildest ones. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, but for me, I was, it was really more of a people pleasing thing, I think, than it was about like church, but I didn't want to get into trouble. Yeah. Setting an example for others was enough of an excuse for me just to abstain 
mm-hmm. until college. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell me about you. What was it like growing up? A lot of similarities, some differences. The drinking culture at my high school was weird looking back because the popular kids were all religious for the most part too. So the lines were oh. more drawn around what church they went to. Mm. The Southern Baptist kids were the teetotalers and it was like cool not to drink and they were always the designated driver. But the Catholic kids I knew partied pretty hard on the weekends and then went to mass and got absolved and then did it all again the next week. <laughs> like that was These are like living stereotypes. They really I love are. It. They really are. The Methodists, which was what I was growing up, were kind of in between. With my friends and peer groups, there was a lot of secret drinking and a lot mm. of shame about that, like you kind of mentioned. I remember a group of my church friends getting kicked off of a staff team of a youth retreat because they had gotten caught drinking at a graduation party. And I remember thinking that that was so harsh. Like there Mm. was this real missed opportunity, I think, there for a moment of healing where we could have had some honesty about how hard it is to be a teenager, you know, and maybe like bring that to the youth group and talk about that. But instead it was very like the hammer came down, you broke a rule you set a bad example, you sinned, God's mad at you, you're out, you're done. We're, and I just remember the how devastating that was for the kids that yeah. that happened to, you know? No, no space for making a mistake. No, no, or making any kind of like amends either. It was just really, mm-hmm. it was it was hard. But it was also hypocritical because everything you were saying about the adults in your community was spot on my experience as well. And listening to you talk, I was reminded of the time I was at a friend's house. There was a group of us and my friend's dad that owned the house, he'd been out partying and he came home. He had driven himself home, staggering drunk, and he tried to dance with me and like grabbed my butt. And I was probably 16 and the whole thing was treated like a big joke. Like the friends were all just like, oh, that's dad. You know, dad's dad's. A mess again or whatever. And Sexually assaulting young girls while drunk. I know. And I never went back to that house again. And mm-hmm. But I also think now, looking back, everyone thought that these kids had it so good because their house was the party house and like, oh, they were allowed to do anything. Mm-hmm. But what must it have been like behind the scenes for them, you know? That's it's such just, a good point. Ugh. There were a few parents in our community who would allow their friends – Uh, their kids and their kids' friends to drink in their homes because what they said was that they felt it was safer than for them to be out getting drunk, which I get. We all knew who those parents were, and other parents definitely gossiped about them and had their own kind of judgments about that. And then on the opposite side, there were parents who, if they found out drinking was happening at a party, they would show up and yank their kid home, or they'd call the police on the party. And you knew who those parents were, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I just, I just imagine now how it had to have been really hard for our parents to know how to navigate all of this because drinking can have devastating consequences and you want your kids to be safe, but how do you actually do that? How do you model a healthy relationship with alcohol? It's just, I don't know. So you and I grew up in the just say no to drugs and alcohol, like era of total abstinence, which looking back, I don't think that was the healthiest or even the most effective way to teach us how to live with the reality of alcohol. Because my reality with alcohol is that I lived with an alcoholic. 
my stepdad, who was married to my mom for 10 years in my childhood from age 7 to 17, but we didn't talk about his alcoholism. We barely even said the word out loud until after they got divorced, well after. So what I learned is that there are these extremes. There's total abstinence, teetotaling, there's drink and hide it, or there's alcoholism. Like there's... Mm. I never saw anything else, really. And shame was, like, the through line of all of it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. What is your family's story, if you don't mind sharing, with drinking or substance use? There are some parallels with your mm. experience. Um, a lot of alcoholism in my family. Multiple mm -hmm. generations mm -hmm. of alcoholics and addicts abusing drugs, selling them, going to jail and prison for related crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's pretty common, honestly, if you start yeah. asking people who are willing to uh -huh. share. So yeah, that's very prevalent. I can remember going over to my grandparents' apartment when I was a little kid, and no matter what time it was, my grandfather was drinking a beer. Mm. He always had a beer. Mm -hmm. And I never met his older brothers, but apparently all of them were alcoholics too. And I imagine that didn't start with them either, sure. you know, yep. but we never talked about it. My uncle, my grandfather's son, was an alcoholic, I think, pretty much his whole life. And I remember my grandfather paying for him to go to rehab mm. multiple times. And eventually he died in his late 50s in a, an accident that likely could have been prevented mm. had he not been drunk. Mm. So it was alcohol-related, but not yeah. directly in the way that you might think. It was yeah. really, really terrible. But, you know, what's strange to me, given all of this, is that I didn't realize that I was in an alcoholic family system until a few years ago. Right. Honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe this is common mm -hmm. for families with addicts. You just pretend like it doesn't exist, like you were saying, so you don't talk about it. And once I understood, oh, I grew up in an alcoholic family system, my entire life started to make so much more sense yes. to me. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> so much. Like the good girl syndrome I had, which yeah. I thought was mostly about messages I got from church, that started so much earlier yeah. in life. Like being the model child or model family member, not creating more chaos and being self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. That's a very typical role that children take on to yep. balance things out in the family. Yep. So it's just interesting how it's taken me until, you know, almost 40 years old to realize that that was a big part of my life. But again, it wasn't talked about. And I think alcoholism and families can show up in lots of different ways. Yep. And it's just not something that we discuss, hence why we're talking about it today. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you look back on that time in high school and what was going on with your adult eyes and brains, do you have any thoughts about what was, like, actually going on under the surface of all that behavior? Mm. Looking back with adult eyes, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I think in the episode series we did on mental health a few years ago now, that my first spouse in my 20s struggled with alcohol and drug addiction. We've since divorced. And that experience led me to the 12-step group Al-Anon which was when I started to understand that my marriage to him was a continuation of generational family patterns, just like what you were talking about. Because alcohol abuse, not just drinking, but drinking every day, drinking to pass out, pretending that wasn't what was going on, was so normalized in my family. And then binge drinking was so normalized in my peer group that I had absolutely no sense of what a healthy relationship with alcohol really is. But I was very skilled at hiding problems at home, 
rationalizing mm-hmm. dangerous behavior and taking the responsibility onto my own shoulders of keeping everything together and keeping the household running. Just like you were talking about, like becoming a little adult, very young, yep. and then carrying that on into my first marriage. And that is a very common pattern in family systems where alcohol is present. Alcoholism is present. But when I look back at the drinking culture of my high school, I'm wondering why were kids drinking? You know, why did drinking hold such allure? And why was it so common? Like the stories of your high school experience and mine are so similar. And I Mm -hmm. think some of it, of course, was just the thrill of doing something illicit you're not supposed to be doing. And teenagers push boundaries because that's what they do. But I also think we really didn't have any better tools for coping with life. Four AP classes in one semester are killing you. You want to quit the track team, but it's the only way you can pay for college. Your parents are getting divorced. You're secretly Mm -hmm. queer, but you go to the Southern Baptist Church. Like Teenagers have stress and difficulties in life, too. And it's Mm -hmm. not like we had mental health resources everywhere we looked just falling from the sky. We barely had the internet. So it's really no wonder kids at that time were getting wasted on the weekends and raiding their parents' medicine cabinets for pain pills and selling them at school, you know? So maybe instead of learning to just say no, we should have been learning coping skills. <laughs> Lord, fancy that. <laughs> fancy that. You know, something that gives me hope about this is all the recent research, maybe you've seen this too, that I've been reading about Gen Z drinking way less than millennials. Mm. There's one article that does a good job of talking about this that we'll link in the show notes. It's called Why Gen Zers Are Growing Up Sober Curious on BBC.com. And they talk about the data in the UK and the US. And there are a lot of reasons for this, but I suspect at least some of that has to do with mental health being less stigmatized and just more access Mm. to resources online and overall. But what was troubling and interesting in that article is that millennials, our generation, folks ages 35 to 54, are the heaviest drinkers by far of all the generations. And that feels pretty true based on my experience. (laughs) I don't know. The boomers (laughs) I know drink a lot too. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's a good segue into talking about our relationship with alcohol now, now that we're adults. So what is the drinking culture like now and how do we engage in it? Yeah, I wanted to think about how my relationship with alcohol has changed so much Mm -hmm. over like 20 years or so. And I shared I didn't have my first drink until I was in college. After that first year, I did start partying regularly with other students who Mm -hmm. were older than me, who were at least 21 because they had... I mean, not because they had access to alcohol, but it just changed the game Mm -hmm. to be being with people who could buy it themselves. Yep. But I was still sort of immersed in evangelicalism at the time, and I definitely felt some guilt around drinking socially, even though I wasn't doing it excessively. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed it, honestly, in social situations, like have a drink, go dancing kind of thing. It was really fun. Yeah, it's fun. Um, It was. And I was also dating somebody who was outside of evangelical Christianity at the time, which created like more not guilt for me but just this sense of i'm ready to rebel like this Mm. is feeling too constrictive for me evangelicalism is feeling too constrictive for me and i want to do what i want to do and so i started my rebellious period that most people go through in middle school (laughs) or high school i just waited till college which honestly may be a better place to do it i I was i was the same way (laughs) Yeah, yeah okay so maybe that's more common um And then when I was in college, I lived in Italy for a semester before I turned 21. Wow. And that's where I actually learned to 
drink and appreciate wine because it's such a gen- it's like such a different thing. Yeah. In Europe, not to say there aren't alcoholics cuz there are, but because there's not that like kids drink earlier, I think mm-hmm. there's just more of a sense of this is something that you do to enjoy your dinner. Mhm. So I had to- a totally different relationship with alcohol during that time. And like, yeah, we would definitely party too, but I just learned to like appreciate it for what it was versus the mm-hmm. outcome of drinking to get drunk. Yep. You know what I mean? And yep. then I came back and I still wasn't 21. It was very strange. <laughs> so I came back from Europe and I'm like, what? I can't drink here? So strange. <laughs> um, but then for me, seminary was really where I did my heaviest drinking. Ooh. And it was totally a coping strategy. I was really stressed out. I felt really unworthy to be there. Mm. Drinking was encouraged and sponsored by the school at every single event. Wow. There was always wine and wow. beer. I think that's maybe in part because of the Episcopal oh. Divinity School. That's mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. But um, we were always the one at the graduate student bar most nights. It was like, mm. oh, the Divinity School's here. <laughs> like, we were the ones frequenting. I, maybe we weren't as studious either as the law school or the med school. I'm not – probably that too. But lots of alcohol there. Lots of alcohol abuse for sure. And then next to that, I would say early parenting was yeah. when I turned to alcohol the most. And yeah. then that in the early days of the pandemic, which coincided to a degree for me. Yeah. Um, and what I find is like the idea of a drink sounds so much better than it actually feels. For real. To have a drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just like the idea of it because when I do it, it doesn't actually give me what I want. And so now I've just found my desire to drink is pretty non-existent in general. And I have a lot more strategies for relaxing now. And also I really value my mornings and I want to wake up early and I want to feel good. And I know moderation doesn't work for everybody, but it does for me. So Mm -hmm. at least for this. And if I had to like characterize it now, I would say I'm just kind of indifferent Mm. toward it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I can kind of take it or leave it. But I know that that's not necessarily true for everybody. And What we also wanted to talk about is this trend of, like, the wine mom Mm -hmm. that is mostly an internet thing, I feel like. But it also says a lot about, like, especially white women in their 30s and 40s who are parents of small children. Um, And I feel like a lot of this came out during the pandemic because we were all at home drinking. And so I was reading this article from The Atlantic from back of May of 2020 called The Many Faces of the Wine Mom. And it's more about, like, the phrase, the wine mom, that got very popular on Instagram. And I was thinking about how when you just are going through Target and everything is, like, all the shirts for women it's are, wine like, o'clock all day. Yeah. yeah like, mimosas. <laughs> and, you know, it's, like, everything is yeah. alluding to alcohol all the time. Or if you look up Etsy gift ideas for women, it's, like, always a wine glass. It's oh, just, like, totally. a thing. and. Mm-hmm. What the article discusses is that it's not really so much about the drinking so much as it is about the fact that women are exhausted all the time. (laughs) And (laughs) can you relate? And wine becomes a shorthand way to say, I need a break because my life is overwhelming and I, what I really want is help. But instead, I'm going to laugh about drinking wine. Uh huh. Uh huh. That, that feels (gasps) true. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not surprising to me when I reflect on my own relationship with alcohol that my consumption has gone way down as my daughter has gotten older. I mean, we're in the sweet spot. Maybe it'll change when she's like a teenager, but like the demands right now of a later or like early elementary school student, it's just 
so much less than like yeah. early, early parenting. And I don't feel that same way that I need to escape and I feel freer to move about the world and do things other than drink that help mm-hmm. me relax, like taking pole classes and going for walks with friends. And early on in parenting and in the pandemic, we were trapped in the house and mm-hmm. alcohol was one of the few things that I had available to cope. I think probably a lot of people can relate to that. Yep, for sure. And so in the article, um, this associate history professor at the University of California, Lisa Jacobson, who researches families as well as food and wine and drink culture, said this in the article. In the long term, maybe what wine moms and moms of other social classes and non-drinking moms need isn't a supersized glass of alcohol but social support mm. in the form of affordable <laughs> childcare, what? paid family leave wages, what? What? <laughs> equitable wages, and of course, an equitable division of labor at home. Who'd have thought? <laughs> Who'd have thought? Here's how, here, have some wine instead, instead of what you deserve, mm-hmm. which is help and support. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I can basically echo everything you just said. My heaviest drinking was also in college, and then my first few years in Nashville in my early 20s when partying was just the norm in my friend group. It's what we did. There was rarely an event, a dinner, a get-together where alcohol wasn't just a big part of it. And my Mm -hmm. drinking also increased early in the pandemic, but that phase really has passed for me as well. I would say the biggest upheaval in my relationship with alcohol was definitely my first marriage. My life was in complete chaos because of my spouse's drinking and drug use. It was just a horrible time in my life, and it was also a real turning point for me. But not like in the obvious way of I saw what alcohol abuse could do to someone, so I changed my own relationship with drinking. That's kind of an oversimplification because that wasn't it. What that experience did for me was introduce me to mental health resources for the first time in my life. Through Al-Anon, I learned about codependency. I learned what real self-care is, all about boundaries, all those basic building blocks of learning to take responsibility for my own mental well-being. And then once that veil was lifted, I've gone on to pursue so many other forms of therapy through which I have addressed childhood trauma, depression, and anxiety, all the things that I was using alcohol to cope with in young adulthood to numb, to avoid, to distract, all of that. And now I have so many other tools to deal with hard stuff and to stay present in my life. Things like being in nature, moving my body, tapping into community, truly resting, all the things I did not understand how to do it or why before. So in that way, I'm really grateful for the experience of my first marriage because I can, if I'm honest with myself, envision an alternate path where I never learned how to deal with life and just became more and more dependent on alcohol to get by. I really can. I don't consider drinking a big part of my life now. I enjoy it. Every now and then I overdo it. I think just like a normal person, I think what happens when you don't drink that often is your tolerance Mm -hmm. gets so low that you don't Mm -hmm. realize when you've had too much. That's so true. (laughs) But like you said earlier, I'm so much more connected to my body now and how alcohol makes me feel in the moment and in the next day that I don't want to feel bad. You know, I don't I don't want to feel drunk, really. I can prioritize that. But I do want to say that this makes it sound like I am talking about individual responsibility here. And in some ways, 
Yes, owning my stuff and doing the hard work of building a toolbox of coping strategies, that really is only something that I could do for myself. But I was able to do it because of all the privileges that I've had throughout my life, like money to pay for therapy when I need it, being able to take time off work for appointments, my job at the time that sponsored my health insurance that paid for my ex-husband's rehab, you know, that's out of reach for so many people. The ability to navigate our incredibly complicated healthcare system. And then just being a white person in a mm-hmm. health system where all the resources are overwhelmingly geared toward white people. Not everyone has that. So mm-hmm. the way I see it, this isn't a just say no situation. This isn't about willpower mm-hmm. or abstinence or anything like that. We could be doing so much more to support people in all the ways, just like you were saying. Everything you mentioned about supporting parents is just one example and providing mental health resources so everyone can learn how to cope with the difficulties of life in the ways that work for them. So well said. So well said. It's a both and. (laughs) Yes. It's the personal reflection, but also thinking about the systems that set us up to fail or to rely on things like alcohol to help us get through life. Mm -hmm. And I think realizing that maybe can help me have more compassion for people who do who do turn to alcohol that way even thinking yeah. about the parents i grew up with like what were they doing right what were they escaping from um right. and to show ourselves compassion too when we find ourselves coping with things that are not the best for us you know mm-hmm. so i'm really grateful for this conversation it's not yeah. something that i've spent that much time thinking about in this way so I hope that that's been helpful for people listening and maybe maybe our listeners will want to take the time to do some reflection on this too. And if you have any thoughts or if this is more of an area of expertise for you and you want to share resources with us, we would always love to hear from you. You can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. And next time we'll be taking on another taboo topic, TBD. Yes. So <laughs> make sure you're subscribed to Kindreds wherever you listen to podcasts. And Ashley, I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 